Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. No special announcements, so let's jump in and see what the questions are for this week. First up, over on Floatplane, Domdi Dom Dom wanted to chime in on the conversation that Lily started last week about how you would do a side-by-side -side surround sound system for two players that want to go head-to-head -head or just play alongside of each other. And Dom said the stereo mixers do exist. They have a Moki MAMX2, six stereo inputs, but they do exist in less or more inputs, four, eight, etc. And they're just available on Amazon. For surround sound, it's possible, but janky, so they can't guarantee the result. Here's their solution. Each game system will need to output a sound to a sur surround decoder with analog RCA output for all channels. PS5 and Xbox Series X do not have optical audio out, so you would need either an audio extractor or a decoder with the HDMI audio extractor. Then you connect the RCA outputs to stereo mixers with RCA ins and outs, and you would need a few of those. The smallest are four-channel stereo, so if you want, you could do four consoles total. But the tricky part is you need an AV receiver with those surround RCA inputs matching the decoders. Very common in the 90s and 2000s, but not anymore. They were meant, recommend looking for a Marantz, as they had a lot of models with that. They would start with the receiver, then get the matching decoders. Um... And there would be no lag in this kind of setup as long as the nothing you add has any processing to it. So that is, uh, and, and Dom -de Dom Dom said, all components they mentioned are available on Amazon. Don't forget to use retro RGB affiliated links. <laughs> Thank you, Dom. Much appreciated. And thanks for chiming in. I think that's a pretty interesting solution. So basically decode the HDMI to individual channel RCA outs, blend those with a mixer, and then that way you could have it through one surround sound that has both of the audios through it. I'd be really interested to see how that worked. So it might be worth Lily picking up a really cheap mixer, or I'm sure your band's got something you could just borrow and just do it with stereo and see what happens. And if you think, oh no, there's like an echo and there's too much excess noise bleeding into people's, uh, you know, bleeding in through the excess channels, at least you were able to do an experiment for free. But um, I like Dom's solution. I think if this is something that you're you're trying to accomplish, that would probably work. So thanks very much, Dom. Now moving over to Patreon, Weasalo wanted to follow up on the problem they were having with the SNES core on the Mr. not being able to output digital audio. And I suggested maybe just changing the frequency in the Mr. INI file in case it's their target device uh, is not compatible with the SNES's weird signal. And apparently that fixed it. Uh, audio started working again when they switched back to 48K, I guess from 96K. However, then the audio levels were all off balance. And uh, luckily, Weasel already uh, stumbled upon the fix, but I'm going to repeat it for anybody listening. The, each individual core has its own volume slider as well as the global one. So right when you boot Mr., you could immediately access the global volume, but then each core that you go to, you could access both the global and that core. So if one core is way louder than others, then you could just turn it down. If one core is way quieter, you could leave that up and turn the rest that you use down, which is something you only really need to do once, and then it should save. So that that's an easy solution, and I'm glad that one worked for you. Next question, though, they've been enjoying all the teasers on the RetroTINK 4K. However, they don't have a 4K TV in their setup. Would the TINK 4K still be worth it for 1080p 120? Perhaps someday they could update their setup, but holding on, they're holding on to their plasma as long as they can. So first of all, I love my plasma TV, too. It's always going to be, as long as it's working, it's going to be at my in my house in, in some way. It's in my bedroom now because I gave the other TV to my in-laws. It was down here for a while. I'm, I'm never getting rid of it. I love that TV. The OLED's better, but that TV's awesome. So I, I definitely hear you. 
I'm pretty sure they didn't make 1080p 120 uh, plasmas, so I'm assuming that you're saying, would it still be worth it for 1080p 120 gaming monitors? And my answer is absolutely yes, without a doubt. I showed a lot of that stuff in the video that I had done, and I'd been testing that quite a bit. And simply being able to use BFI that's safe for LCD panels, remember the LCD saver's on by default, would be a huge improvement to motion blur. Or you could do scan lines, or you could try to do both, but you would have to have a really bright monitor for that. You would have to enable HDR, turn all the brightness settings all the way up and everything, but you could potentially have something that looks really, really awesome. The only thing I'll add is the OSSC Pro can also do 1080p 120, but I only tested that years ago when it was a very beta firmware, and it did work and everything, But uh, and it works in the decks as well, but I just think that's something that, um, in order to truly comment on that, I need to test it with launch day firmware. And, you know, I always got to clarify these things because people love to jump on what I say, but there's no shade towards Marcus. Marcus is awesome. His products are awesome. It just, it is what it is, right? The Tink 4K has been in beta tests uh, at multiple beta testers for a year. And now in the past couple of months, it's been at a ton of beta testers. So that's going to release working pretty solid but more expensive. So depending on your budget, I think that's what really it's going to come down to budget and features. So if you say, all I want to do is 1080p 120 with BFI, I don't care about anything else. The OSSC Pro might might be a better choice. We'll have to wait till the lag testing's done and we can see all that stuff. Um, or you could say, you know what, I'll pay the extra money because I want all of those features that the Tink 4K has. Even if I start only using it at 1080p 120, I'll definitely use it for multiple things in the future as my setup grows. So that's going to be a choice you make, but I'm really looking forward to testing out the OSSC Pro because no disrespect to Mike, but if you said, no, the only thing I want to do is run my 1080p 120 monitor and its native refresh rate and add BFI, and I don't care about anything else, and I just got a, a bunch of consoles and I don't need any rotation features, I don't need anything then yeah, I mean, that would probably be the better choice for you. So, but I mean, that's why I like when there's products out there that that fit different niches in the market. You know, it's not somebody just trying to copy every feature somebody else has to gain market share. It's, you know, Marcus has been at this for a while and he's really coming at it from a different perspective. So there's going to be some overlap, but there really is going to be a, a product out there for everybody soon. So I'm pretty excited about that. So hopefully that steered you uh, in the right direction to answer your question. Ghost of the Sun has a question that I really can't answer. Basically, they want to get their CRTs recapped and RGB modded, and they don't want to ship them because of all the nightmares of shipping CRTs, and they'd prefer to go with someone local, but they have no idea who in their region or location is somebody that's trusted. But I learned a very long time ago, keeping lists of trusted modders never, ever, ever ends well for anybody, for the modders, for you, especially for me. I don't mean to sound selfish, but don't forget, if there's a list on retro RGB and something goes wrong, who is the first person people come complaining and blaming when something happens? Me. So zero lists on my website for stuff like that. Period. End of story. No discussion. I've had lots of arguments with people and it's totally fine if you disagree, but at this time it's still my website and there are no lists on it. Period. So um, the I'll get into it a little bit, but basically what almost always happens is you have somebody who's doing great work and then they get on a list of trusted modders and now they're absolutely swamped and overwhelmed with work. So generally speaking, then they 
put their prices up because they have to. They can't just take everything that comes in. So then I get complaints that their prices went up, and so do they. And then either they have to start turning out, turning away a lot of people because they just still have too much work, which then I get blamed for because why is the modder up on my list if they can't accept new work? And Or worse, they just accept it all and their work quality goes down because they're trying to blow through it all. And guess who gets blamed? Me. So no lists, period. Uh, if you want to know somebody in your region, I suggest going into all of the Discord servers, Facebook groups, Reddit, as much as I hate to say that, and talk to people and see who has gotten work done on their CRTs and, and listen for the right things. Because with respect to your average person that just want to get, get this stuff done, they're not an expert. So they might not know if they had a good mod or not. And the best example was that really shady company in Canada doing those horrible N64 mods. They probably killed <clears throat> 100 N64s by now, but people bought them. They got them home. They plugged them in. It worked. And they said, oh, this is great, a good company. So you have to kind of be creative. You have to say, hey, you know, did you get pictures of the inside? What does the work look like? Are you getting any interference? You kind of have to do some detective work in this stuff to find out if the modder really is doing a good job. And on the flip side of things, how does the modern know that they're not doing a good job if it all works? That's why, I mean, people absolutely get frustrated by Voltar until he's defending them and suddenly there's he's their favorite person, but his harshness does really bring things into, into perspective when it comes to modding techniques. And he helped me a lot over the years with this because it's really hard to figure out who's just a troll on one end and who's just a, a harsh person telling you the reality of that your mod work's not that good. So um, you're going to have to do some detail. I guess the, the very short answer now that I've already rambled for three minutes is that uh, you have to just go to groups, talk to people who's gotten work done in your area, and then ask a whole bunch of questions and hopefully even get some pictures just to see if the work actually is good. Um, hopefully you leave, you leave, you live somewhere close to Steve from RetroTech because that would be a very easy one. That's obviously somebody I'll recommend because this whole channel is about that. Uh, so, you know, and that's another thing you could do as well. You know, Join the RetroTech Discord and talk to people there and maybe people there could help. But, um, you know, with with harsh respect, no lists on retro RGB. You could complain, you meaning everybody, not you, Ghost of the Sun. You could complain all you want. It's never going to happen just because it's always melted down and I always had to take the blame for it. So as long as I'm still the one running it, never a list. Next up, Shane Coolen said that they remembered a video where I talked about more direct video HDMI mods being passed into the RT4K. Does that mean they should hold off buying HDMI modded consoles? They're thinking about Dreamcast, Wii, GameCube, etc. So I don't quite remember what you're talking about, but I also may have said stuff wrong because it's very common that my ADHD brain spits something out of my stupid face when my brain is already on to the next conversation. So I could have jumbled something up. But what I have talked about a lot is wanting basically direct video HDMI mods for consoles. And that technically exists in GT GC video. I'll get back to that in a second. But what I really wanted was, I mean, to be Blunt and honest, I wanted Pixel FX to have two products. I really tried so hard to get them to listen. I wanted a cheap, cheap product, as cheap as humanly possible, with zero features. The only feature would be that it takes digital output of a console and makes it into HDMI-compliant video. Maybe, maybe 
uh, have like a switch on the side or something or a controller option to line double 240p to 480p just so you could get an HDMI mod that works on you know most displays but I didn't even want the interlacing just pass 480i through and in my opinion even if it could only output 480 or uh, 240p and 480i not even line double that's fine too because now that's future proofing to other things so obviously pixel effects chose the software unlock instead which definitely disappointed me because i do think that this is a future proof right if you buy a fully featured hdmi mod five or six years from now when we're at 8k scalers or something like that all of those features are useless. You're just using it in direct mode. So you would have spent all of that money on for no reason. And now that we have scalers coming out, like the OSSC Pro, the RetroTINK 4K, that have HDMI inputs, then that's going to be a pretty big deal because now you could just scale that however you want. So I don't think that exists, though. Except GC Video, one more second. Uh, that idea never really came about. And that's something that I, I wish it did. And I, I still think that there's room in the market for that. The only prerequisite would be clean digital-to-digital -digital signal and zero latency added because why would you add like three frames of lag to do a complicated internal mod if you just had to, or if you could just plug a cable in? So zero lag, one-to-one -one output. I do think a lot of people would buy that if they already planned on buying the other scaler. Now, lucky for you, GC Video can do basically that. Um, the Carby, the plug-and-play device for the GameCube, you plug that in the back, you set 480i to pass-through, not Bob Deinterlace, and then that's it. All of the signals that come out of the GameCube are going directly digital-to-digital digital into, you mentioned the RT4K, so there you go. Now those signals are getting scaled, true digital, without any other processing done. Um, there's also an internal mod for the Wii that was recently talked about. We talked about it on Retro RGB that Voltar checked out and said he found it to be absolutely perfect. I believe it's also GC video based. And so same thing, just go into the menu, set it to not deinterlace 480i so that your scaler does it. And there you go. All signals passed through. The only other console, uh, Xbox, Make Megahertz, their their mod essentially does that as well with a lot of other features, but you could just not choose not to scale to a different height. You could just do a true one-to-one -one digital output. That one works very well. Uh, it is recommended that you get a BIOS update done or the um, uh, the mod chip so that you could run the custom BIOS on there. And it does have some extra features, but essentially that's another sort of direct option. Now, if you're talking about the Dreamcast, my suggestion would just be get whatever is the cheapest one you can get. Maybe somebody selling their DC Digital version 1 because they upgraded to the version 2 or something like that. It doesn't really matter. As long as you could just take it, get it installed, and set it to just digital output and not scaling. So I forgot which would be best. I don't remember if it would be 640 by 480 or 480p. But try both settings and, and see which is which. And there you go. That's the same thing. You would just turn off all processing on the DC digital and just have it output. And that would accomplish the same thing. And hopefully you could pick up a cheap one from somebody that's upgraded. So hopefully that puts things into perspective. Uh, if you're thinking of something else, let me know. Uh, maybe I'm just remembering all this stuff wrong. Maybe I was talking about something else. But at the very least, I still think that's a worthy conversation to have with everybody. So hopefully the answer wasn't too boring. 
Jeff L. asked a question last week about getting RGBS over SCART for a modded Wii. And I had asked why, because that might not be the best solution for whatever the problem that they're trying to solve is. Turns out it might be the best solution. They have a PVM 2030 that they have to open up to tune. If they optimize the picture for RGB, the composite and S-video suffers. Component video is not supported on that model. And for those reasons, they try to standardize on RGB whenever possible. If they connect a SCART cable to the Wii, the picture is very green. Uh, I believe that's uh, either because of component video. Yeah, that's probably, you're right. It's probably because they're sending component over SCART. And they tried launching a game normally and via USB launcher to see if the video switched to RGBS over SCART. It did not. You would have to manually set that, though. That's something that you have to force in USB launcher. Um, I know I've done it before because I, I did a whole thing on the website about it, but this was 10 years ago. So I knew the option was there. So I would just go back and go into the USB launcher options and just see if there's something launch in PAL mode, launch in RGB mode, something like that to be to do that. Um, you could use any region changer to change from NTSC to PAL, but then you would have to see, is it outputting PAL 50 or PAL 60? Because that's going to very much change your games and how they're experienced. Now, Belmont suggested the comp to RGB, but there's only one issue with that. It's always outputting a signal. So um, if you're having, I vaguely remember you having multiple uh, automatic switches. So if you have something like the comp to RGB that's always outputting a signal, then um, I think if you put it in the last port of a GSCART, it might always default to that until something else is turned on. That might work. But more importantly, even if it does, I think I would get a power cable for that that has a, a power switch built right in, standard USB. They're very low-power devices. And that would totally work. Uh, it's just that if you wanted a fully automated solution, that might cause some issues. But if you don't care about whenever you turn your Wii on, you just flip the switch on the comp to RGB, or I guess any component video device, then that's not a problem at all. So if you wanted to do this without an additional hardware purchase, I would go back and check every single option in USB launcher, because I definitely did it just a million years ago. Um, and then you could kind of look into other people who might be doing region switching for this reason. But I do think that um, the comp to RGB might just be the easiest overall. So start with USB launcher and please follow up again because I'd love to see the conclusion to this because you basically are in the perfect scenario to launch Wii stuff over, uh, over RGB. So I kind of want to see how this all ends. Next up, Steve Wells said, thanks for the tip on the PowerBase FM adapter for the Genesis. Works a treat. Looks a bit ridiculous sticking out the top, but them's the brakes. <laughs> Those Mark 1s really do sound great. Yeah, uh, I agree. It does look a little silly with everything stacked on top of each other. I think the power base converter made it look like a crazy-ass transformer, um, whereas the power base FM looks more like um, a game genie or something like that, which even that would be ridiculous to use back in the... ridiculous looking to use back in the day, but it's a great solution, and it probably accomplished everything you need. So, yeah, I'll leave a, another link to that just in case anybody's interested. Another amazingly weird question from Oliver Clare. They discovered that their 16-in, 1-out coax RF combiner isn't just a switch. It could actually merge signals from multiple RF sources simultaneously. And Oliver's thought was, what if they could have all of their RF-only consoles? 2600, 5200, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Famicom, Magnavox Odyssey, all powered on at once 
but modulated over a different channel. So if you wanted to have a fun experiment, you could power them all on and then just use the remote on your TV to change between channels in order to dial in whichever console you want to, to want to watch. So that's a very fun idea. And I think that would be as long as you're willing to put the time and effort into doing that, it would be pretty neat. The one thing I definitely remember, though, was back in the day when I would have two RF consoles plugged into the TV, even if one was set to channel three and one was set to channel four, if both were powered on at the same time, there was definitely interference. So you might want to do something like one console's channel three, the next console's channel seven, the next console's channel 14, you know, stuff like that to really try to space out the different channel settings. Um, now, Oliver left a link to a device that supposedly is an RF to RF modulator with an adjustable channel display. Um, that seems like it would work because I don't think, uh, you mentioned your RF combiner doesn't have the ability to do that. Um, and it would, it would be pretty silly to try to mod something like that. So <laughs> for a $5 a piece thing, that might be pretty neat. Um, so I would kind of look into that, maybe buy one and see what happens. And also I read the, uh, the specs on it. I'll leave a link of course, for anybody who's interested, but does that do NTSC to PAL and PAL to NTSC RF conversion? Because if so, that's something I'd be interested in because I want to hook my Atari 2600 up to a PAL CRT that I have. Um, and I was thinking of just getting PAL guts for the 2600, but then I thought, well, maybe something like this exists. The only problem is it's very common for these to buffer the signal. So a $5 device, you might be okay, but it might add two or three frames of latency. So that's something you would have to test as well. For what I'm trying to do, I don't really care. It's just more of like a fun little display thingy to have, especially if the thing's five bucks from AliExpress, I might as well just try it out. But uh, I'll double check the specs, or if anybody happens to know of just uh, NTSC to PAL RF to RF converter, that would be even better. So let me know. But yeah, I think that's a pretty cool idea. The only The only hesitation would be latency and how much it would cost to actually implement this. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six times five is 30. Is it worth an extra 30 bucks to do this plus your time to wire it all in plus the extra power supplies for the devices? That's got to be up to you. So I would buy one and just see what happens uh, and kind of go from there. But that's a fun idea. I, I do, you know, it's not when I say fun, right? I'm not trying to, to put you down. I mean, it's obviously if you just wanted to play a console, you could just turn on the console. But I love stuff like that because maybe it's just something you do when your friends come over and you just want a fun little display to have or something like that. So I don't know. I like it. Um, but you're going to have to do a little bit more research to double check or just buy one and give it a try. Next up, Gemini Man is a fan of OEM wired controllers. Me too. They've been considering buying a cable extender to add an extra six feet for their N64 controller. Do they run the risk of adding input lag with an extender? No, absolutely not. You would have to have like a mile long cable in order to introduce latency for something like that. But you do have pins and power to worry about. So if you said, I'm going to buy three of these and string them all together, DC power uh, dissipates the longer the cable. I mean, you'd have to have, unless they're super thick cables or something. So you do run the risk of, if you plugged many of them into each other and not getting enough power to the controller, uh, you also have the risk of maybe just a regular controller works, but a zapper or a peripheral will not. Like the Super Scope, I believe I had this issue with because the, the 
uh, cable on the receiver is very, very short. So I tried to use an extender for that, but it didn't have all the pins. So it wasn't able to pass through, um, not because of latency, just because it, this, the wires weren't there to transfer it. And lastly, some of them just have bad connections. I had a Saturn one that I would have to like tie and so that there was pressure on it because if I just plugged it in it wouldn't actually make connections so you don't have to worry about input latency but the good news is it's either going to work or it's not so even if you want to plug two of these into each other if if it starts working it's probably fine and if you see them pop out you can put some you know put some painters tape around it uh to connect them together if that works, great. So it's not going to be something where you get, unless the controller cable pulls out, obviously, but you're not going to get halfway through a game and then suddenly have it glitch out. You're going to notice right away. So, yep, uh, cable extenders, um, controller extension cords, whatever you want to call them, they're all safe to use as long as they're wired for the peripherals that you're using and the connectors are decent enough quality so they don't just pop out. Jordan OS wants to talk about 8K TVs. And the specific reason is because the resolution would provide integer scaling options for almost every retro gaming resolution, including Game Boy and Game Gear, Game Boy Advance, PSP, Vita, plus all the standard resolutions could all be integer scaled into them. So is this something that we should care about? Why isn't there any kind of scalers out there? And if they buy an 8K TV, can it do that? So some of my answer is going to be speculation. Some of it's going to be fact. Um, I'll try to, to let you know which is which. My guess is that not a single 8K TV will ever do integer scaling because no other TV does integer scaling at all, period. They just don't do it. You can turn the sharpness up and it is a sharper scale, but very often you get ringing and it's not a true integer scale. So, um, which is kind of ridiculous because gaming is a global multi-billion dollar business, but TV manufacturers mostly ignore anything that's not current, and they don't even often do a good job on just basic stuff like VRR and latency. So my very strong guess is that no TV will ever do what we want it to do for retro stuff. Um, next up, uh, yes, a scaler could absolutely be built in order to do that. However, that would require much more expensive chips, uh, for example, it would double the price of the RetroTINK 4K, and people are already complaining about the price of that. So Mike definitely made the smart move not going down that road, at least yet. But it's not just the chip. Everything around that's more complicated. The motherboard design would be far more complicated. The stuff that you need to use with it. I mean, everything about this is going to be more expensive. And also... Um, the scaling algorithms that Mike has implemented does a very good job for non-integer stuff. So you could do a scale and then zoom it in, and it's going to be 99% there at the moment. But there's another thing that I definitely want to mention, and that's uh, that's the frame rate, the refresh rate. And for what I've seen, running things, depending on your use case, depending on your display, everything else, it's actually pretty cool to see things running at 1080p 120. And... I'm wondering if the next step would actually be 4K 120, 4K 240, and maybe the chipset required to do that would also include 8K 60, but I think it's it's coming to a point where, other than the integer scaling aspect of things, I think you would notice a much, much bigger difference running things in 4K 120 than you would 4K 60 versus 8K 60. And I think that's kind of the other reason why many people haven't jumped onto 8K. It's because going from 
DVDs, which are mostly 480i content. Yeah, I know you can deinterlace. Some of it was native for it. Yeah, yeah. P- point being, you're talking about 480i interlaced stuff. So the jump <coughs> from DVD to Blu-ray or from SD to HD was massive, not just for resolution, but for everything's now progressive scan. And going from Blu-ray to 4K is a far smaller step up. And then going, in most cases, if you have very big TVs, that's when you really start to notice stuff like that. Like a 70-inch um, 1080p versus 70-inch 4K, you'll you'll start to really notice a lot of difference, especially if it's like an OLED or something. Um, whereas these sized TVs, going from 4K to 8K, isn't going to be as big of a jump. Uh, maybe when, you know, 80-inch TVs are the norm, uh, which is probably too big for most people's living rooms anyway, that's when you would start to notice a difference. So there's a lot There's a lot to answer your question. I wish it was as simple as, yeah, 8K is going to be the best because it's integer scaled in, but what if you had a 4K 240 TV and you're able to do, you know, three-to-one strobing BFI, so you retain a lot of brightness, but you still have a black frame inserted for a smoother motion, um, because of that extra brightness, now you could blend in some scan lines in a different way. And I, so I, I think that while 8K is eventually going to be what we use, I do think for gamers, and especially for people who want to add effects and, and any and motion stuff, I, I think higher, uh, you know, higher frame rates, even if it's false by doubling it like that, I think that's going to be kind of the chase. But I mean, someday I'd love to see an 8K 240 TV integer scale, all of these things, as well as add these features. I think that would be pretty cool. But no matter what, I would absolutely not count on TV manufacturers doing this for us. I think it's still going to be community made. Um, But yeah, I mean, who knows? 10 years from now, we might all be gaming on a RetroTink 8K. Next up, a couple of things from Jason Guffey. First, they're curious if I got to play around with any more CRT computer monitors and custom resolutions like I did during that one stream with Shank. Yeah, I took the RetroTINK 4K and I had it accept a 1080p24 TV show. And then I had it output 1440p 1080, so basically 1080p but 4x3, at 72 hertz, so that essentially I had smooth motion of a TV show on a CRT. It looked really cool. I uh, I tried some downscaling stuff as well, but I got to do some more tweaks for that because the goal, my goal is basically for it to look like 480p 24, which is not a thing, by the way. So it would have to be like 480p 72, but so that way you get no 3-2 pull down progressive scan on a CRT. I think that'd be a really fun way to watch TV shows. So there's an endless amount of things you could do if you have a, a scaler like the Tink 4K or a PC plugged in. Um, now, Jason mentioned trying to take uh, an HD CRT and use a PC to output 540p to it in order to bypass the latency issues. That should totally work. You would just need a custom resolution utility. I believe there's one called CRU, custom resolution utility, but you could also use NVIDIA's one, which is finicky sometimes, but those should all be possible. So I would look into that. I'm sure there's somebody else that's tried it. Um, you might need to do the horizontal overscan thing. So like if you're sending 240p down HDMI, it's very often like 1280 by 240. You might have to do something like that with a 540 um, vertical resolution, but it's very doable. Um, and let me know how you make out with that because all this stuff is a lot of fun to me. Next, they know I'm very strained for time, but they've been noticing more and more YouTube channels put out clips or snippets from their longer form videos or podcasts, often to quickly address a single question or topic that's slightly too big for shorts. 
Yeah, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And the two issues I have, the number one, 99% is time. I, I just, I don't have any time left at all. I've been like forcing myself to pick up and play guitar as I'm walking in and out of the house just to get like a minute worth just so my hands don't go numb and I'm not able to play play anymore. Um, so that's just not going to happen. But the other thing is that the few times I thought, hey, you know, I, I answered a really cool question in the Q&A this week. I think this is info that people would want to get out there. I did clip it and it's so weird to have it completely out of context. And I just, I don't know how I'd feel about just an answer floating around like that. And also these Q and A's are supposed to be like, we're hanging out, having a conversation somewhere. So I'm talking based on what I remember at that time, at that moment. So, and also I learn new things all day long, every day. So stuff like that, casual conversations. I'm always a little leery about having a little snippet out there just in case, you know, what if that info doesn't really match up to what it should be. Uh, thanks though. I appreciate the suggestion. And lastly, Jason bought the APC voltage regulator from the Amazon page, but they also use a couple of APC UPS units in their game room, as well as some APC power strips with 12 outlets and surge protection. They know plugging these things in together is generally a no-no, but they also know they only draw dangerous amounts of power when many things are on at once rather than individually like they have them. So what do I think of chaining these devices together? Um, so there's a couple of things. First of all, you're totally right. You could have a thousand things plugged into a power strip into a UPS, but if only one thing is turned on at a time, you're probably fine. The issue is that when the devices that are powered on draw more power than the UPS is able to output, and usually it'll just shut down, which has happened to my PC before when I cheaped out and bought a, a crappy UPS, not a good sine wave one. So you're right about that. <coughs> now, you mentioned surge protection. Do they actually have surge protection in them? Because 99% of quote unquote surge protectors, if you open them up, they're just a bunch of AC outlets wired together. There's no protection in there. Maybe there's a few sometimes, but usually not. So um, if that's the case, then it's no problem because you're basically just sending everything. And yeah, there's phantom power and all that. So if you have one of those power strips that have individual power uh, buttons on them, that would be pretty cool just in case. But I wouldn't worry about that unless you're turning many things on at once. So, for example, if you just took the console that drew the highest amount of power, like one of the new Xboxes or something, and your TV and your stereo, and you you wrote down the maximum amount of power that's drawn, as long as your UPS is definitely a step above that, then you're fine. That'll compensate for phantom power. That'll compensate for the time that you leave your NES on and pause, to the, you know, because you want to finish your game later, like I used to do as a kid. So that should be totally safe. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have th multiple things that process power in the same chain. And uh, when it comes to that the voltage regulator thing, I would use one or the other. I would either use that or the UPS. And the voltage regulator, um, that's been in use ever since Renee told me to use it. And uh, so 10 years now or something, eight years, whatever, however long ago that was. And that's been great, but I never mix them. So uh, upstairs, there's no UPS. My OLED TV, the uh, two-channel stereo that I loved that I did that little video on, everything's plugged into that APC voltage regulator. And that's plugged into the wall. And that's been zero issues whatsoever, even the one or two times we lost power. Um but of course, the difference is when I lose 
<clears throat> when I lose power, the voltage regulator trips, and then I have to go and power it off again and power it back on. Whereas the UPS, most of the time, it does nothing in, in a good way. Like it might beep a couple times, but it just, you don't lose power to any of your devices and it comes right back up. So um, that's kind of the basic overview. But if I miss something, please let me know. Next up, Alex S. wants to know how Electron Shepard's Xbox to HDMI adapter compares to OEM component cables through a $20 HDMI converter, specifically the video and audio quality. So the short answer is it's probably going to be better. It's probably a better choice. And unless you already own those other things, I would just buy the Electron Shepard. I'll explain why in a second, but I just, in case my nerdy droning uh, loses your attention, I wanted to just skip to the end and say, it's probably just better to get it. But here's why. First and foremost, consistency of component to HDMI adapters are just not good these days. Um, there is at least one person working on community-built ones that should be better but those are really designed for multiple things. So it would still be cheaper probably to buy the Xbox to HDMI. So you would have to find, uh, you know, the ones I list on the Amazon store, you know, people still email me to this day. Hey, I bought it. It works perfect. Hey, I bought it. It doesn't work at all. I had to return it. So, you know, that's why I list Amazon. It's not just the affiliate link. It's the fact that if you get a bum one, you could easily return it. Um, and same thing with component video cables. You know, are you actually using good shielded ones were they good and shielded but somebody's dog chewed them and you know they're some of the shielding wore off on one of the colors or something like that so and also are they the component cables that offer digital audio output as well as analog audio output some do some have a little jack built right in because what the xbox hdmi latest version offers is a little switch on the back that toggles between sending the xbox's digital audio over the hdmi port or sending the two-channel analog audio to an analog digital converter out the HDMI port. And this is to solve the problem of some TVs, capture cards, and AVRs just don't like the Xbox's digital signal when accepted over HDMI. So <clears throat> switching it to two-channel mode just solves that problem. So asking how it would compare is just way more complicated. Um, do you have the Xbox and... Uh, Dreamcast with component cables and you want to hook both up to something, you know, it, it's, it, it's really just a, a question of your total setup, but do you already own OEM component cables and a, a component adapter? So asking which is the better solution is, is going to be for you, what your setup is, what parts do you already own? But if you're coming at this as I don't own any of this stuff, the Electron Shepard one, 100%. Plug and play, small little thing, works perfect, so you don't have to worry about it. But if you're actually just saying what looks better, they look the same, provided you have good cables and a good converter, which, you know, like I was just explaining, that's not always the case. And the audio may or may not be more convenient. If you want specific separate digital audio sent to a receiver and analog audio sent to your TV, then a manual solution like that might be better. But if you just want it to work, and then the uh, Electron Shepherd one would be better. So uh, hopefully I explained that right. But if I made it too confusing, please let me know. Um, but as far as, you know, as far as quality, it really just depends on the stuff that you're using versus the Electron Shepherd. Next up, Dustin Madison's continuing on the New York City-related questions, which I think are cool, so keep them coming if you feel like it. But basically, they want to know if I could recommend what to do to blend in at least a little bit and not stand out super bad as a tourist. 
And the number one thing I could recommend is just respect where you're walking. Treat the sidewalks that you're walking on as if you're driving down a street with your car. Um, Would you, in the middle of a road, in the middle of traffic, slam on your brakes to look up? No, not unless you're really stupid. So same thing. If you're walking, um, don't just stop and look up at buildings because there's a lot of awesome buildings that you're going to want to look up on. Just move to the side, put your back up against the wall, and then kind of check things out and so you're not standing in people's way. Um, try not to walk super slow. There's always going to be somebody that wants to walk faster than you, just like there's always going to be somebody that wants to drive faster than you. But generally speaking, people in New York have places they go, they need to get to, and they don't like screwing around and, and kind of staring off into the distance. So just re- treat the sidewalks as if you're on a road with your car. Um, and also pay attention to where everybody else is walking. So you'll very often see people walk through a don't walk sign. Um, and it's, it takes a little while to understand why sometimes it's, you look down the road and there's a traffic jam and there's not going to be any cars coming for a while. Um, but it is always kind of funny to me to see people stopped at a don't walk sign when there's no cars in sight, as if you're going to get in trouble or something, or as if like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle is going to pop out of the sewer and run in front of you and be like, it says don't walk, like just, you know, but at the same time, don't do that frivolously because it could be a don't walk sign because there's another lane that you can't see that easily that cars are coming through. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. You know, you mentioned things like you stand out as a Midwesterner who has the compulsive urge to hold doors open for people. That happens all the time. It's New York gets this uh, gets this um, kind of unfair whole persona as everybody's rude to you. And if you stop in the middle of the sidewalk to look up, yeah, people are going to be rude to you. But holding doors happened all the time. Um, you know, that, that was just common courtesy, just like everywhere else. Um, you know, I'm not really one to say hi to people at a supermarket, but I've seen people do that before, but I don't, I usually just don't want to be bothered. Um, I guess the, the more on camera stuff I do, the grumpier I get in person these days. So if I'm out just shopping, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with anybody, but you know, obviously I'm talking about the supermarket. If you see me at a game store, by all means, come over and hang out. But you know, if you see me, you know, hung over trying to get a loaf of bread and a giant thing of Gatorade or something, maybe just let, let me be. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. I mean, that's really the number one thing that really stands out is, is people just not respecting that the sidewalk is a throughway and not respecting other people's time. And which, you know, New Yorkers do that too, but it's definitely an interesting thing. One thing that was kind of funny that every, every once in a while would happen was Uh, there was a hotel across the street from where I lived and all the time there would be people you could tell they'd never been in a big building before. And I was outside on my porch, just minding my business, you know, reading or working on my laptop and they're in the window waving. And every once in a while I'd look up and wave back and they'd freak out and be like, Oh my God, they could see me. And one time I just couldn't take it. They kept knocking on the window and yelling and I just like, I nodded once, but I'm trying to get back to working. <laughs> I just, so bad, but they just kept doing it and doing it. And the parents were into it, not just the kids. But I should have been very clear about that. The adults were doing this. There was like two kids doing it, but adults thought it was funny to like disturb people on their porches. So I just reached up next to me and I picked up my bong. <laughs> The parents would shit, just pull pull the shade down. So yeah, it was. Uh, I wasn't even smoking. I just I had it outside, so it wouldn't smell at my house. And I just thought that was a good way to say, you know, you're going to disturb me. Now, welcome to New York. So, 
yeah, respect other people's time. Don't don't cause a traffic jam in the sidewalk. And most of the, as long as you stick to the touristiest sections, you know, you don't wander off into alleyways. You'd be totally fine, and you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. One more question from Oliver. They're trying to get wireless Saturn controllers that match the consoles they have. So they have a gray Japanese Model 1 and a black PAL Model 2, and they're looking for wireless controllers that match. So Retrobit has the wireless Saturn controller that comes in black. That's definitely an easy one. They also have a version that comes in white, so maybe that's close enough to your gray. I'm not really sure. You'd have to kind of take a look and decide for yourself. And they also have one that comes in transparent blue that doesn't match anything, but looks really neat. So that might be something you're into as well. And so I would pick up one of those, obviously the black one to start with, just to see. They do have a bit of latency, but if you're trying to go wireless, then you should already be expecting this stuff anyway. Um, And if you wanted to, take a Saturn, one of your gray controllers, gray wired controllers, and try swapping the guts. And if it fits, it would be a no-cut mod. And if it doesn't fit, you just put everything back the way it was. Just take some pictures if you're worried about where certain parts were. But all you need for that is a little screwdriver. So you know, no quote-unquote modding skills or anything like that. So I would absolutely start with the black uh, wireless one and then see how it performs. Make sure there's not too much lag for you. And then also out of curiosity, see if it fits in original controller shells. And if that's the case buy a second one for the gray controller and uh and if you wanted even put the guts of the gray controller see if that uh, probably wouldn't fit because of the of the hole that would be needed but and you could either way the fact that this is a no-cut mod you could just save the original guts of that gray controller in a ziploc bag or something and that way if you ever wanted to put it back to normal you totally could so i would start there and uh, at the very least pick up the black saturn wireless controller and, and see what you got Next up, RetroYPBPR said they picked a GameCube up out of the recycling at work, and they're just wondering if there's a PSU I would recommend. Um, I actually have a spare PSU I was just about to sell, so DM me if you're interested. Uh, My answer, though, is I would always look for OEM power supplies just to make sure that you're not getting any low-quality third-party crap. Um, if that's the case, if you're able to find one, great. Uh, if you're in the States, you know, it should be cheap shipping. So you just pick mine up, message me if you want it. Uh, however, I would love to know if anybody has any aftermarket ones that they trust. Is there like a really good connector that you could replace the stock GameCube connector with? That's just a DC barrel jack. And then you could use a really nice triad. I don't know. I've never looked into it for GameCube. And if I, if I have, or if I've talked about it, at the moment, I completely forgot. So yeah, generally speaking, when it comes to consoles, I would always recommend either the original or one of the triads that's on that list. And if that's not the case, if that's not possible, I would love more info on who's making the best internal mods, what's the best pairing for other certain consoles, and kind of go from there. Next up, The Dressing Gown wants to know, what are my thoughts on recapping console power supplies to increase the life of the power supply? Obviously, most newer consoles aren't at high risk of the PSU caps failing yet, but in stuff like Xbox, PS2, Dreamcast, N64, will these caps need replacing? And they're debating if it's worth replacing earlier to get ahead to help ensure it doesn't cause some damage to the system when they do eventually fail. They know you could use triad PSUs for the likes of Mega Drive, NES, etc., but consoles with built-in PSUs or proprietary PSUs would be harder or even impossible to simply replace. 
So I have an opinion on this, and this is an opinion. This is not hard fact. Take it as you will. But I personally think that preemptively replacing capacitors on older console power supplies with good quality caps, of course, is good practice. Um, Voltar's gone back and forth on that. He and I have disagreed uh, on that a couple of times, and I think he's actually flip-flopped once he's seen certain installations um, kind of falter as a result of older PSUs built in. Not sure where he stands on that now, but my opinion is it's a very good thing. You could go to console5.com and get one of their cap kits. If you're not in the States, you could try to just make your own or get a list up and order your own caps. But I just think it's something that as long as you do it right and you use quality capacitors, the worst thing that could possibly happen is you didn't need to do it. But you would have had to have done it at some point. So if the console is already 20 years old, 30 years old for a lot of these, then why not, right? So, but once again, that's my opinion. I'm sure there's some technical reasons why maybe it's better to just wait until it dies. But for me personally, especially if you plan on doing any mods or using any accessories like Bluetooth adapters and powered HDMI output adapters and stuff like that, all of that's adding a more of a power draw. Even, even a small amount, it's still more of a power draw than that console was designed for. And if your PSU is in good shape, shouldn't matter at all. But what if your PSU is on its last leg? You might as well just get it while you can. But, you know, I would also take that <clears throat> into consideration depending on what it is that you're working on. You have a console that's very easy to work on. Yeah, do it. But if it's something that it's a rare and fragile old console and it's still working, make sure the caps aren't leaking, but maybe leave it the way it is. But I generally just preemptively recap now. And also, there's so many less caps on a power supply than on a motherboard. So you're really talking, you know, not more than an hour's worth of work usually. If you're a pro, it's way less than that. But, you know, if you're just taking your time, you're getting the old caps out correctly, you're making sure not to break anything, pull any pads up or anything like that. Yeah, it's not, it's usually not very long of a process or hard as long as you just take your time and do it right. So I would, but once again, that's all opinion. So you could completely disagree and that's fine too. Just as long as the caps aren't leaking. If they're leaking, then yeah, you have to replace them. Well, that's it for this time. If you're a supporter and you want to ask a question on one of these, just put the question wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, as you've seen today and the other weeks, I really like just doing this laid back and scrolling through as if we were hanging out somewhere, having a conversation. So the latest Q&A post is always the place to put it. Uh, and if for whatever reason I miss your question, it's almost always because the question came in after I was done recording, but before it got uploaded. So if, uh, you know, if you need something, always feel free to DM me or anything like that. But anyways, thank you to everybody who participates and especially thank you to everybody who supports because it's you who's keeping all this going. So thanks very much and I'll see you next week.